0: In the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Beginnings are important. Maybe, like me, you grew up with the saying that we ought to begin as we mean to continue. The idea that beginnings matter and how we begin something, whether it's a project or a relationship or a new season, has an effect on how things continue. It reminds us that consistency It's important, that we need to set the tone for what we think is coming, and also that we have something to learn from beginnings. Today in the Gospel of Mark, we have the beginning of Jesus's public ministry, and it's helpful sometimes to compare these moments across the Gospels, because each evangelist, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each one of them has an agenda, In what they're writing, there's a certain thing or or a set of aspects about Jesus that they are trying to share with us, an overarching take on who he is that they are trying to communicate with us. Each one of the evangelists, so each one of the gospels, tells the story about Jesus a little differently, from a different angle, from a different perspective, highlighting different pieces of his personality, of his vocation, of his story, and the beginnings are no different. So how do the other gospels describe the beginning of Jesus's public life and ministry? Where do they choose to start this most important story? Matthew begins with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, in that moment, is a teacher. And Matthew shows us this community-organizing pastor-teacher who calls together big groups of people and commands their attention. He's wise, grounded in scripture, and in his prophetic prime, even at the beginning of his public ministry. This story, this long chunk of text, includes some of his most iconic teachings, including the Beatitudes, the Lord's Prayer, the image of how the people of God, you and I, are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And of course, that fulfilling text about coming not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Matthew's beginning image gives us a preacher, a pastor, a teacher, a leader who is accomplished in his study of scripture, who is powerful and who is unafraid to say really challenging things to God's people, to push them, to expect more of them. This is Matthew's first image of Jesus. So how about Luke? Luke, our physician evangelist, begins Jesus's public ministry in his own town. Also preaching, so similar in fashion. And it's a section, though, that we often call the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth. That's right. Luke begins Jesus's three years of public acts with a rejection. A rejection by the people who should have known Jesus best, who should have loved him most and seen him most clearly. He stands up in the temple, reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and it all seems to be going quite well for him until Jesus sort of acknowledges who he is himself, that he is the one, the prophet, who is foretold, and that God has sent him to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to release the captives, to return sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. And somewhere in there, between Jesus indicating that he is the one and that he has come for the marginalized and the oppressed, that he was sent to gather up the broken and to turn their fortunes. The people around him decided, um, no, thank you. We're actually not here for that message, Jesus. We want you to free us, to heal us, to change our fortunes. And if you're not going to do that, well, then you are just Joseph's son after all. And we don't care what you might do for others, especially if that means you're going to take things away from us. As if Jesus proclaiming abundance and blessing and forgiveness somehow hurts the people who already have those things. So the crowd in his hometown, in his own synagogue where he grew up, actually sees him and drag him outside and try to throw him off the side of a cliff. That certainly is a rejection. And before the story even really starts properly, we have this conflict I mean, it's fair to say that little exchange doesn't go very well, right? So, Luke, our social justice, loving, healing doctor evangelist, wants our first image of Jesus to be this rejection by his hometown, by his own people, by the world that would not welcome his message. It's a tough first image. So how about John? John is, truthfully, a lot easier for us to get our heads around. For John, Jesus' first public act is his first miracle. At the wedding in Cana, when he turns six huge jars of water, all 20 to 30 gallons in size, into wine. And not just mediocre, half-decent wine, the scripture is very clear to say that this is the best wine that anyone has ever had. And each of those jars is filled to the brim, and the steward cannot believe what has happened. Now for John, in this first image, it's important for us to see Jesus in his power, showing us the abundance of God, the surprises of God, God's ability to do what we least expect and what we think is really impossible, to make sure that there is enough for everyone. For John, Jesus' beginning, his being pushed actually to begin this miracle by his mother is all about goodness and surprise and abundance, about Jesus' power over the elements, to be sure, his ability to command creation, and his desire to surprise us with joy. So that's a much easier beginning image, one that fits quite a bit better, I think, in, in our sort of modern understanding of Jesus as kind and loving and pacifist. So that's the, that's the three. And then we come to Mark, to the text that we have today, knowing all of the choices that the other evangelists have made, the, the way that they choose to present Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, It is striking that with Mark, we get an exorcism. Jesus begins his public life in Mark's gospel with a conflict, with a controversy. The text tells us that he rebukes and calls out an unclean spirit. And while some question his authority, the people are amazed at what he can do. They are amazed at what they're seeing. And so his fame begins to spread, and that sets the stage for his ministry. Now, if beginnings are important, what are we in the modern era supposed to make of this beginning? What does Mark have to say to us about who Jesus is and about what his ministry would be like? What are we supposed to learn from this story, from this beginning? After all, exorcisms aren't really something that we connect to in our world. Sure, you might've seen them on screen in a couple of movies that you either really liked or really didn't like, but as Episcopalians, most of us living in the US, this is not an everyday sort of commonplace piece of our life and our understanding of our faith. So what is Mark trying to tell us about Jesus? First, it's important to know that exorcisms in the ancient world were common. The ancients understood them in a very different way than we do. In fact, their whole world was different than ours. And science tells us that so were their brains. They believed in different things, processed information differently. We sometimes are tempted, I think, to look back at the past and to look down on it as if it was just this primitive place where they just didn't know enough or just didn't have enough science. And that really isn't the case. I mean, there certainly are differences in science and technology, but their world was just different and they felt it and experienced it and processed it remarkably differently than we do. So their lives, their brains, everything was different. So when we come to a story like this, we have to sort of take that into account and remember that we can't necessarily put ourselves in the story because we don't know how that felt. For them, the world was filled with signs with spirits, with dangers that they couldn't necessarily see or quantify. And spirits sometimes were the driving force behind the unexplainable. And there was in the world, just like there is now, so much that is unexplainable, so much that we don't understand, that we wish God would change for us, that we don't understand why God would allow some of these things to happen. So we do have some points of contact and connection. And the text, the people are amazed that Jesus has authority over these things, even over the unclean spirits. Now, the consequences of having an unclean spirit in the ancient world, whatever form that took, was that you would be barred from community because likely your unclean spirit made you do or not do something that you really needed to do in order to be welcomed into civilized society. It was something that couldn't be controlled. And because you behaved outside the norms, you would be ostracized, left outside of worship, out of normal life with your family and friends. It was a very lonely way to live. And because of that, in our time, when we come to these stories, we tend to interpret the unclean spirits as something that keeps us away from community, something within us, or something that has power over us in the world that keeps us from the healthy, fulfilling life that God wants for us. So The simple question for us when we come to a text like this is what possesses us? What keeps us from fulfillment, from wholeness, from healthy relationships? Is it a pattern or an addiction? Is it a habit? Is it a prejudice? Is it a grudge or an idea? What keeps us from each other, from being the disciples we're supposed to be? On a macro scale, I think you could make an argument for things like COVID, or politics, or war. But on a more personal level, I think we're looking at things more like our love of things, of possessions, of money, our pride, our prejudices, and the broken pieces of ourselves that we hide from others at all costs. Now, all of this begins in the text with Jesus rebuking those things, not the person. Jesus doesn't rebuke the person who has the unclean spirit, but rebukes the unclean spirit itself, the weakness, the possession, the broken bit, the choice to remain apart, the requirement to be left out, whatever it is that is unhealthy, whatever it is that keeps us from living well. In order for that thing to be cast out, Jesus comes near to the person, as we see in the text, He is with that person in the suffering, sees what the unclean spirit is doing in their possession, and then rebukes and casts out the unclean thing. Now, just to fill out the picture, we might also imagine that this process is not particularly easy for the person who's having something cast out of them, right? That doesn't sound like a fun process and it isn't for us either. Because the things that possess us take root, they take hold, they wrap themselves like vines around our heart and they tie down our feet and they separate us from other people. And these things are sort of insidious. Whatever they are for you and in your life, they they hold us close so that we won't try to get rid of them. It it becomes a, a very unhealthy relationship. And this is what Mark is after. In his beginning of Jesus's public life and ministry, as he tells us how Jesus begins and honestly will continue throughout the rest of the gospel of Mark, we have a picture of a savior who comes to get us, who will climb over any obstacle, any unclean spirit, anything that possesses to be with us in that and ultimately to rebuke the unclean evil thing and to call it out of us so that we can be free. And remember, this is not an easy process. Having these things, whether they're patterns or addictions or prejudices or biases or fears, whatever they are that hold us back, that limit us, that keep us unhealthy and broken and on our knees, calling them out and having them removed from us is not easy. It's often very, very painful because we have to look with truthful eyes and hopeful hearts and wait for Jesus to come and free us but it's only then that we get to participate in community again fully. It's only then that we feel free. It's only then that we know the fulfillment and the health and the wholeness that God wants for us. So Mark begins this public ministry of Jesus at the beginning of his gospel with a confrontation, with power, with conflict, to show us a Jesus that is formidable and unafraid, who will never stop coming to save us and who is not afraid to walk with us through the painful pieces, to call us on the truth and to rebuke the evil to come out of us. As Episcopalians, that's not language that we use very often, but it is right here in the text. So what possesses you? What possesses us as a people, as a nation? What needs to be cast out of our lives and of our hearts? What about our life and our living together do you think Jesus would rebuke? This is the challenge of Mark's beginning, the desire for us to confront the unclean spirits in our lives that hurt us and hurt the people around us, the broken places in our hearts that we are too afraid and too ashamed To talk about that we think we can hide even from God. To let Jesus into those places because God can already see them. And to accept the help of casting out these unclean things. Mark's Jesus is serious about us. About our sin and about our salvation. About protecting us and making us in this life as whole as possible. Because we know we will be whole after this life. But the promise of Jesus isn't just for then, it's for now, so that we can be whole now, fulfilled now, unafraid now. So this morning, I ask you to think about your beginnings, how you begin this day, this week, how you begin the season ahead of Lent, how you begin this next chunk of our life together, even if it is defined by COVID. What is your beginning? How do you mean to continue? Will you accept the help of this formidable, powerful Jesus? Will you do the searching of your heart and the searching of our life together as a people and as a nation to cast out the unclean spirits? Will you choose this Jesus who begins with a confrontation, who is not afraid to speak the unwelcome truth? Will you choose him and his beloved community over the things that possess you and the things that tear us apart? Amen.